it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. Today, we have Jeremy Schneider. He is joining us from the Personal Finance Club, and he's here to talk to us about all kinds of fun stuff. We're going to talk about some personal finance. We're going to talk about some investing, maybe even throw a Halloween spending or two clip. But uh, Jeremy has been doing this since 2018, and he's got a fun backstory. So maybe we could start with that, Jeremy, if you could kind of tell everybody maybe how you got here? Why personal finance? Why do you think it's important? Why did you start what you started? Yeah. Hi, guys. Thanks. You know, my story kind of starts in college. I turned down a job offer from Microsoft and kind of forewent the traditional climb up the corporate ladder career path and instead started an internet company. I had no idea what I was doing. I literally Googled how to start company and was losing money for a couple of years. I was living on credit cards just to pay for the most meager of groceries and things like that. Racked up about $12,000 of credit card debt. But then the business started making money. I was able to pay off my credit card debt. I grew it for about 12 years. And then at the age of 34, I sold it for just over $5 million. My share after taxes and my employees got some was about $2 million. And so I kind of became you know wealthy overnight. And there was this period of time before you know, the wire cleared my account and I could click refresh and see $2 million in there where I had, you know, about three months during this like due diligence period where I was pretty, you know, I thought it was highly likely the deal would close. And so I knew I was likely to get this money, but didn't really want to become one of those stories where the garbage man wins a lotto and then is a garbage man again, you know, three years later. And so I started reading every book I could on personal finance and investing and started to see like, all these books basically say the same stuff, but it's not a message that we hear very often in pop culture. You hear, spend more money, cars, loans, debt, you know, buy, 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 be materialistic. But the real way that people build wealth is spending less than you make, investing early and often, doing it over long periods of time. And so I eventually quit my job two years later. I took a year off of just being on vacation. It's what I thought you were supposed to do when I like retired at 36. And then at 37, I started Personal Finance Club because I just I just love it. I like helping my friends with it. it the, the, the name was actually 
coined from friends that I would meet and have a beer with and we'd like open up a Roth IRA together and teach them about how to like, you know, choose investments. And then we jokingly called it personal finance club when we were drinking beers and opening Roth IRAs. And now here we are. It's like actually the name of my like, you know, personal finance education brand. That's an interesting backstory. And I don't know that I've ever heard anybody talk about drinking beer and opening Roth IRAs. That I think is a first for me ever. Yeah, after four or five, maybe you might want to slow down on clicking by, but uh, <laughs> but more than zero just so you get the you know the the wheels moving. <laughs> so I guess what gave you the impetus to go from you know being retired to starting something like the Personal Finance Club? Was it after reading all those books, did you feel like there was still a void that needed to be filled to try to help people? I think I've heard you guys say something similar, which is like, why aren't you just on a beach with a bunch of ETFs in your bank account? And mm-hmm. that's what I did for a year, you know, essentially. It wasn't just one beach, but I tra- I did what I thought you were supposed to do when you retired young. I traveled, I played beach volleyball. I actually coached beach volleyball in Italy, you know, Australia. I played video games. You know, I just was on vacation for a year. And, you know, right when I sold my company, it was exciting. Like money came in. I was very interesting. I was going to events and I was like this, like, you know, interesting person for a moment. But then that memory kind of faded pretty quickly. And I realized that like life continues. And I had, I'd worked so long for that big exit for like, you know, to cross the finish line and raise my hands in victory. But then life kept ticking forward and this year went by and I was like, what am I doing with my life? And I didn't, you know, you kind of lose purpose. There's no project I was working on. There's no tension in my life. And for like a week or two, that feels great. But for a year and beyond, I think it starts to, you know, everyone's experience varies. But, you know, they say the reward for financial independence is an existential crisis. And I think that I kind of experienced that. And so I was like, all right, Someone actually, you know, a friend of mine at the time asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? What are you going to do with your life? And I said, I would love to teach personal finance. Like, it's just what I love doing. And and so, you know, I would like have a show or a podcast or whatever. And so that's when I, you know, we both decided to like, that's not that crazy. I was like, yeah, that's not that crazy. And so that's when I kind of started a personal finance club. I opened up an Instagram account and basically started posting every single day, like little bite-sized, fun fact, personal finance infographics. And that's kind of still what I'm doing. Yeah, those are really cool too. Can we maybe touch on that for a second? Because I was looking at one of them yesterday and the cost of Halloween. So this was kind of fun. You got this great infographic and you're talking about, you know, the different costs that are 12.2 billion that we spend on Halloween to celebrate. But the the one that I got a kick out of was the pet costumes. So 0.7 billion in pet costumes. What does that say about the United States? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's funny, like, you know, our infographics are all kind of centered around money. But this one was, you know, yesterday was Halloween. I think this recording is going to be a few weeks later, but we just like to draw attention to the ways people spend money. And, you know, real wealth, in my opinion, is built by spending below your means, living below your means and investing. But it's not like a really sexy message, you know, as isn't like diet and exercise, right? Like everyone wants the diet pill, everyone wants like the quick fix and it's the shiny object is really distracting. And so I think Halloween rolls around, you have a cute pet, you want a cute Instagram photo. And so like, oh, what's 25 bucks on a pet costume or 35 bucks? And, you know, then there's the house costumes and there's the your costume and the candy and the costume for your kids, decorations. And then you're like, oh, I spent 250 bucks on Halloween. And then Thanksgiving's next. And then 
the birthday's next and then the party's next and then, you know, and just spending is just so easy. It's so fluid. We've got credit cards, doesn't hurt. You swipe it, you tap. Um, but all that little stuff that's so easy and not even a conscious decision often adds up and kind of is draining wealth from us. All right. So there is one person out there listening right now, staring at the pet costume from three weeks ago and saying, yep, Jeremy, you're right. I'm guilty. How do you help this person break out of that if they feel like that's something they want to stop doing? So budgeting is the answer. I think a lot of personal finance gurus will say like, oh, budget and fits in your budget. But I live here on planet Earth where I think 95% of people just are never going to budget. You know, I do this with my life. I love it. For years and years, I I did budget, but I just I'm like a spreadsheet guy. I'm a math guy. I'm a nerd guy. I'm a money guy. Regular people here on planet Earth don't budget. And so I say, you know, make kind of like an automatic budget where, you know, I think what most people do is they look at their checking account and they just see how much is in there and see how they're doing, if they're saving or drawing it down. And then based on that, they make these decisions, right? So if you look into your checking account and you see 12 bucks and rents due next week, you're probably not buying pet costumes, right? But if you see a few thousand bucks, you're like, okay, whatever, you know. Um, and so what I would say is set up systems so that you can still live the way you want to live, but you're saving and investing first. So make sure if you have a job that offers a 401k, set it up, set up those automatic contributions, set up a Roth IRA, set up those automatic contributions into your Roth IRA, get a high-yield savings account for, you know, upcoming expenditures like houses, cars, weddings, set up automatic contributions. And so when your paycheck comes in, you've got two or three or four automated savings and investing transfers that are happening automatically. And then with whatever's left, you know, keep living your life. And then, you know, then if you're like, okay, it's a little bit tighter, you might just naturally not be spending as much on pet costumes. And I think that's a good way to not dramatically feel like you're being naughty every moment when you're spending money, but setting up systems. So you're going to, be successful long term. So, do you think as part of that, some people should put the credit cards away? You know, I'm not a big fan of credit cards. I think that it's just a game and it's a game that the consumer loses. And credit card companies are so good at tempting with points. Just yesterday, actually, this is a true story. Yesterday, I bought a flight to Spain and I have a credit card that had like 100,000 points. And I sat there for like, and this is me, like that, like I literally am the founder of this thing called Personal Finance Club. I talk about this every day of my life. I sat there for like an hour or two trying to figure out how to use these stupid points to buy this stupid flight. And I had a lot of points. I knew I could afford it. And they're like, oh, if you use the points, you get these perks and blah, blah, blah. And I, like, it was confusing and sketchy because it wasn't, you don't book through the airline, you book through the credit card thing. And there's all this like this imagery dancing through my head of these influencers on business class that they do it with credit cards. And I'm like, what, why, what am I getting wrong? And then I realized there's like a cash out button on these credit card points where you could cash out and just get the money. And then I was like, I'm just going to do that. Like so much easier. I took the money. I went to AmericanAirlines.com. I clicked buy. It was like a thousand times easier, but it just shows how susceptible even I, who I consider myself to be like a very like robotic person kind of on the spectrum of, of like, you know, not as emotional as some people. I'm like so taken by this idea that I should be playing this credit card game when I shouldn't. In fact, I probably spend more money on credit cards than I would otherwise if I was using a debit card or cash because I'm subconsciously tempted. I, I hear this voice in the back of my head saying that all the time. Well, at least I get the points. 
You know, that's like me just rationalizing spending more money. And the points are worth what one to 2% of your spending. But if you're spending 30% more, because at least I get the points, it's a dramatically terrible decision. And so, you know, like you said, there's someone out there being like, well, if you're going to spend the money anyway, you might as well use a credit card. Yeah, of course, that's technically true if you're going to spend the money anyway. But I think you have to be very, very honest with yourself. Are you going to spend exactly the same amount of money as you would otherwise? And almost for everybody, the answer is no. I mean, I've read studies that say like some people spend 50% more money on credit cards than they would with cash or debit because it just feels like this game of monopoly money rather than like your actual money from your bank account going away. So I use a credit card, probably have less money for it. If you're someone who's struggling with it, I think it's perfectly reasonable to ditch the credit altogether and start spending cash. Yeah, it's a lot easier way to go and you don't have to worry about running into problems. When I was in the bank world, I had a customer that told me that they opened three credit cards to help boost their credit score, but they only used one of them and the other two they put in a jug of water and put it in their freezer and froze it so that the only way that they could access it was they had to wait for it to thaw so they could use those cards. And that was their way of controlling their credit card spending. And I was like, you know, that's not the silliest idea I've ever heard. I mean, this very visceral imagery of uh, like locking your money away. But I agree as, you know, hey, if it can save you a few thousand dollars a year, it's way worth it, right? So mm-hmm. I respect people who are honest with themselves enough to put those sort of restrictions in place rather than say, oh, I was going to spend the money anyway. Might as well get the points. But you say that and then you look at six dog costumes behind you. Like, were you really going to buy six <laughs> dog costumes? You know, like you maybe you weren't going to spend the money anyway if you're being real honest with yourself. <laughs> maybe we could back up for just a sec. You were kind of talking about systems and I guess for you, how does that work? Do you automate things as much as you can? Do you have different apps that maybe you use or platforms, banks that are better than others? Like what kinds of tools do you help with do you use with that? Yeah, my situation's a little different because I think I'm more in the drawdown phase than the accumulation phase of wealth building. I don't know where I am. You know, I'm not a, on a fixed income trying to live below my means right now. I think I have enough money invested to never have to work for the rest of my life. And so my general personal strategy right now is just live relatively frugally. I think I could probably spend a hundred to $150,000 a year and not burn through my nest egg, you know, with the safe withdrawal rate and how much the investments are growing. And I spend like 50 or 60,000 a year. And that's basically all I need to do. That's that I still have systems in place. Like I have a 401k personal finance club has kind of been gone from a passion project to a small business. And we, we set up a 401k plan for me and my two employees. And so I max that out to the 22,500 allowable limit every year. And that happens automatically from my bank account. A lot of people think about systems and they think it has to be super complicated, but just your mm-hmm. 401k is a great one, right? And there's a lot of 401k millionaires out there who set it up in their 20s and then they wake up in their 50s or their 60s and oh, got a couple million bucks in there now. Nice. I talked to a friend of mine who is in her, just around my age, just turned 40 and had a million bucks in her 401k. So I'm like, that was, that was nice. And then, yeah, otherwise, I guess I don't currently have a lot of automated processes for myself just because I'm like just kind of spending down rather than saving. What's the best way to steward your wealth? Looking to find great businesses with a margin of safety? My advice, Value Spotlight at valuespotlight.com. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. 
Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. How do you keep that frugal mentality when you've already crossed the finish line? I mean, the amount of things that you could desire, want to spend money on really becomes endless. It doesn't stop when you reach a million dollars or $10 million. So how do you keep that frugal mindset for yourself? That's a hard question. And personal finance club, whenever we make a post at the bottom of every single post, we always say, reminding you to build wealth by following the two rules of personal finance club. Rule number one is live below your means. And rule number two is invest early and often. Of those two rules, investing early and often is actually a pretty simple matter. You can open up a brokerage account, set up some automatic investments. It takes, you know, maybe a few hours to learn and a few minutes to set up. And then you don't have to really do much for the rest of your life. Living below your means is a daily challenge because every single day that credit card wants to get swiped. And like you said, it's hard to maintain that maintain that frugal mindset. And I don't the answer is is hard for me because I don't know. Partially I was born with it, partially I was raised with it. Partially, I read a lot about it. I think one of my favorite books is The Millionaire Next Door that kind of just goes into how wealth isn't spending. I think in pop culture, we see people buying fancy cars, going on trips, bigger homes, and they think, ooh, that person's rich. I'm like, no, that's spending. Rich is what's left over after you spend. Um, And it's so easy to get caught up in 
the spending world, not the wealth building world. And so I think it is just a matter of habit, reading, and that period before I sold my company where I thought I was going to have a wire of a few million bucks coming into my bank account one of these days, it was a very weird time for me because like for the first week, the images of Ferraris were, were dancing in my head or whatever the, you know, whatever the equivalent is. But, you know, I think I had this weird experience where I knew the money was coming, but I couldn't spend it because I didn't have it for a few months. And so then I basically had this like three month thought experiment, which is what if I went and bought a Ferrari? Where would I park it? What would I look like rolling up to my friend's house in a Ferrari? I personally think I'd look like a douchebag. So I'm like, doesn't match my style at all. You know, what if it got scratched? How much gas does it take? You know, I'm like, oh, I can't get a Ferrari. I would just feel so stupid if I had a Ferrari. I was like, and then the more, the more I did that thought experiment, the more I realized it's a lot harder to convert money into happiness than we all assume. I think everyone thinks, oh, if I was sitting in first class, I'd be happy. Oh, if I had the next car, the next house, the next whatever, I'd be happy. But the people who have the next first class car, house, whatever, they're not happy, you know? They're probably even more. And so you just have to basically find peace in that there isn't happiness over the next hill of spending. And it's a tough pill to swallow because then you have to answer the question of how do you find happiness? And it's not so easy as, you know, if I had more money and spent more money, I'd be happier. But at least if you eliminate the spending more money makes me more happy, it can open up the opportunity for the real solution. That was deep. <laughs> are we gonna? It's are very we gonna cerebral sometimes? Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. Are we gonna find the solution to happiness today? <laughs> the best answer I've had is my mom asked my grandma, like, "What's the point of life? Like, why are we all here?" And my grandma said to my mom to help people, and mm-hmm. I think that's you know that's kind of it, right? We're all going to be buried in the ground a hundred years from now. Everyone listening to this podcast and the three of us, we're not going to be here, and there's going to be all new humans on Earth. And, you know, I don't think our legacy will be measured by uh, how much we spent. You know, it'll be measured by like how well we lived, how much we help people. And um, I might add to that to be happy to help yourself, you know, so be happy and help people and find your own happiness. That's really what the point of life is. So beyond that, I don't know. Pretty good answer. Above my pay grade, I think. Pretty darn good answer. So we talked about being more on the frugal side of things, but we haven't really touched much on the investing so I know you mentioned a 401k and you've talked about opening IRAs on a few beers. If you were starting out investing, how do you help people kind of start that path, especially when they don't know anything? Yeah, I think, you know, a few things I've heard you guys say too, is that a really important part is just getting over the inertia of doing nothing. This concept in physics I learned, which is static friction. And if you have like a block on a surface and you push it, it's much harder to push at rest than it is in motion because there's a static friction. It's, there's more friction when it's sitting than when it's moving. And we've all experienced that. You're like, you're pushing something, once it moves, it's like, oh, like it slips and then you can, it's easier to push. It's like the same with investing, right? If you've never invested a dollar, that first dollar is terrifying because there's like mm-hmm. images dancing in your head of Bitcoin and day trading and options and futures and, you know, ETFs and index funds, mutual funds. I don't know. There's like so many, you know, Goldman Sachs and Bear Stearns and blah, blah, blah. Like, ah, you're like, like, how could an individual possibly dip their toe in that world. It's terrifying. And so, you know, my, what I say to those people is like, yeah, it sounds terrifying, but if you read about it for like a couple hours or like listen to a couple podcasts or read a couple books or whatever, it's really pretty simple at the end of the day. It's like you put money into account, 
you buy, my favorite investment is an index fund. So you're basically buying all the stocks and then you leave it there and that's it. And then everything else I mentioned, trading, futures, options, Bear Stearns, Bitcoin, just ignore it. Just don't do it. That's not investing. In fact, I'm wearing this right now. It says investor, not speculator, because I'm not guessing what oil futures are going to do tomorrow. That's not investing. That's speculating. That's guessing. Investing is a very simple process of systematically putting money into something that's likely to go up over time and likely to pay dividends while you own it and then just leaving it there. That's what investing is. So it's, and you know, my two favorite investments are real estate and the stock market. So you put money into these things, leave it there for years. And the matter of like knowing which buttons to click, you know, it takes an hour to learn and, you know, I post what buttons to click on my Instagram all the time. It's a little bit, you know, I'm happy to say it right now too, but like, I feel like people are like, what buttons do I click? I'm like, it's everywhere. They're everywhere. Watch a YouTube video. Everyone's telling you what buttons to click. You just haven't Googled it yet. <laughs> the signs are everywhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> all right. So how do you recommend somebody does start? Let's say they want to open a brokerage account and they want to put their first... $200 in the market, where do they go? How do they learn about, you mentioned index funds and we've, Andrew and I've talked about those off and on. We're not big indexers. We're definitely stock pickers, but we certainly understand the power of index funds. And for most people, that's the best way to go. And so what, how do you tell people to find an index fund and what is an index fund if they don't know? Yeah. I mean, the first step is to open an account. And so we're all familiar with bank accounts, basically checking and savings accounts. But if you want to invest, you need a new type of account that's generally called a brokerage account. And brokerage accounts are very similar to checking and savings accounts in that you can put money in and they have account numbers and they're with a big bank. But you can also put investments in. And so you can't put a stock in your checking account. That's just not how the system works. You have to put it somewhere else and that's called a brokerage account. And so you have to go open up one of those. And I've mentioned Roth IRA and 401k, those are actually special types of brokerage accounts that act, offer tax breaks. And you know, if you're a beginner investor, listen to Beginning Investing Podcast, and this has scared you, I'll ease your mind, which is like, it's not that bad. You know, there's not, once you hear the words a few times and look it up, you'll get it. But to simplify things, even if you don't pick one of these special tax advantage accounts, just a regular old brokerage account. Is a great way to start. And you can open up with Vanguard, Fidelity, or Schwab. Those are the three biggest online US brokerages in the US. And then you put your money in. So you take your 200 bucks, you link your bank account like you would with a Venmo account or something. You transfer 200 bucks in. And then once the cash is in there, you're not done. You just have cash sitting in a brokerage account. Then you have to go click the trade button or the buy button. And then you click buy. And then you can go look up what you want. So you, for example, if you want to buy Apple stock, you type AAPL. But if you wanted to buy every single stock on planet Earth, essentially, you could type in VT, which is the Vanguard Total Stock Market or Total World Stock Market Index Fund. And so when you buy VT with, like you said, as little as 200 bucks, you can, you own a tiny little slice of every company on Earth. And as those companies profit and grow and pay dividends and innovate and, and expand, all that is funneled back in proportion to how much money you put in into your share of VT. And so I think that's a great way to start. It's really hard for me to think of a better beginning investment than VT because it kind of diversifies away all risk of getting into something speculative that is is going to be more dangerous. And that's what an index fund is. An index fund basically means a fund, which is a shared bank account that follows an index, which is a list. And so there's this list of every company in the world and the index fund buys all those companies in proportion to their size and makes it in this nice little convenient package called VT. 
What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Yeah, that's awesome. I think the other thing that's really cool about that is it 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 takes away all the stress of what do I buy or what if I buy the wrong thing? What if I buy Zoom at the height of the pandemic? And now I'm looking at, you know, the, the company trading at like $6 a share. It just eliminates that whole stress of picking the wrong thing. Because, you know, like you said, if you're if you're buying every company in the world, 8,000 or plus, you know, stocks, it's kind of hard to go wrong with, you know, okay, if, you know, a few of them are going to go bad. That's okay. It's part of the system. But yeah, that thing, that's a great system. It's really a great start. And like I said, it's hard. It's a nice, nice place to diversify away all that risk. Mm-hmm. And or maybe yeah. leave it in. People can see how the sausage gets made. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So when you're thinking about if we could maybe dive in a little bit more on index funds, I think you're more versed on them than I am. So if we're talking about index funds, what uh, let's say that I want to go beyond VT, the world one, and I want to have maybe a few more. How do you choose? And what are some things that are important to look for as positives and negatives? So, yeah, we, we kind of do differ here, although our differences are pale in comparisons to our similarities, I would say, um, <laughs> in that we both live in living below our means, investing early and often, taking advantage of compound growth. That's how real wealth is built. But I'm a big believer in index funds because I believe the market is very efficient. And it's very difficult to pick a stock ahead of time that we can expect to outperform. And because of that, you're kind of left in this challenging place, which is which stock do I pick? And it turns out a really good answer is just to pick them all. And so you can imagine the entire stock market, every publicly traded stock on planet Earth as a pie. And if you buy Apple stock, it's like a tiny little slice. It's a massive company, but compared to every company in combination, it's a tiny little slice. If you buy VT, you're buying the entire pie all at once. And you said, should I buy more index funds? And the answer is like, you probably don't have to. Um, if you did, what you'd be doing is you'd be buying different slices of the pie. And so, for example, instead of buying VT, you could buy two index funds. You could buy VTI, which is the Vanguard US stock market index fund. And you could buy VXUS, which is the Vanguard non-US stock market index fund. Those two kind of make up the two halves of the global market. The US stock market more or less is about half the global market. And so if you buy two index funds, you're buying essentially the exact same, like you said, 8,000 stocks or so that are in the one index fund. And so I think there's really positive financial value to simplicity. When I look back at my own investments and I say, could I have done this more simple with fewer purchases? The simple option not only was logistically easier and less stress and things like that, it's also made me more money. And so I think the simple option is better. That said, what do you look for? You basically look for what's called a low expense ratio. And so when you buy a stock, an individual stock, there is no expense ratio. You're just buying, you know, buying a share of the company. But when you buy a fund that does the work for you of collecting these thousands of stocks together, they actually charge a fee for that. Traditionally, Back in the day, like my parents' era, they would be buying these what are called actively managed mutual funds that charge about you know 1% per year or so, which isn't horrific. But as you've pointed out in your show, even 1% or 2% you know, over time can make a massive difference to your long-term returns, right? And so while 1%, maybe it's not a bad exchange for someone doing this work of collecting all these stocks for you, we prefer not to pay it. 
index funds are much, much cheaper. They're like 0.1% or lower. And so when you're looking for an index fund, it's very easy when you Google them, you can look them up, you can type in the ticker symbol. There's a million different ways to look it up. You'll find the expense ratio listed there. By law, they have to show the expense ratio very transparently because these things are you know, regulated by the SEC. And if it's over 0.2, then that's probably not a fund that you want to be messing with because the fees are going to eat into your returns. You know, VTI is 0.03, and I think VT is a little bit higher because it has international stocks. So yeah, VT is the expense ratio, so it's 0.05%, which is almost zero. And yeah, almost rounding error, even over you know decades of investing. And so that's what you're looking for, is just a broad market index fund that's very low expense ratio and has you know all the stocks you want. If you don't believe in investing in non-US companies, you could buy VTI, which a lot of very smart, rational people say that's what they do. And that has an expense ratio of 0.03% because it turns out US stocks are a little bit cheaper to buy than international stocks. So what about the beginner that's out there that's saying, why can't I just buy these stocks individually. I can buy little stock slices these days with just a couple dollars on Fidelity or something. Why is that impractical for new investor? You know, in my opinion, it's opening yourself up to higher risk without higher expected returns. Because the stock market is so efficient, it's very, very difficult to tell ahead of time which stocks are going up faster than the rest. And so when you're buying not the entire pie, you're buying these little tiny thin slice of the pie, then you're opening yourself up to risk. And so for example, Zoom, you're like, all right, pandemic starting, everyone's going online, schools are going online, companies are going online, everyone's going remote. I know Zoom is going to be huge in the future. It's the next hot up and coming tech company. I'm going to put all my money in Zoom. But that's not what happened. The unexpected thing happened, which is there's too much, you know, speculation built into the price of Zoom. And so then going forward, when, you know, profitability came out and things like that, I'm not an expert on the Zoom stock specifically, but it has not performed well, right? And so if you put all your eggs in one basket and in the Zoom basket, you are going to have lost a lot of money. Whereas if you bought an index fund at the beginning of 2020, you know, index funds are up like 20 or 30% since then, even despite the pandemic crash and despite the bad year we've had in 2022, you kind of have diversified away that. So, you know, that said, I'm a big believer in not letting perfect be the enemy of good. And I think that there should be a release valve on the FOMO. For me, that means I'm investing 90% of my portfolio in index funds and 10% I go nuts. And I'm giving myself that permission to say, hey, if I'm such a good stock picker and I know Zoom's going to be the, the future, then take my 10%. And if I'm as good as I think I am, that 10% will be plenty to, you know, dramatically outperform. And if I made some bad choices, my 90% is still going to continue to grow and, and carry me into retirement. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction. And I think sometimes people, and I've said this before, I feel like sometimes people feel like they have to do one or the other. And I think there's so many different ways to slice the pie. And there's so many ways to be a successful investor. And you don't have to just be I only pick stocks or I only do index funds or I only do Bitcoin or I only do real estate. It, it just, I mean, if that's your passion and you want to follow it, I mean, good luck. But I think understanding what it is, your, you know, what your end goal is and how you want to get there. I think a lot of people feel like you have to be, you mentioned this earlier, you know, simple. And I think that's a great way to look at this. And I think a lot of people sometimes think they have to be super complicated 
And, you know, like I try to remind myself, I don't get style points for difficulty at the end of the end of the game. You know, it's like, no. you know, in fact, there's usually a negative, you know, whether it's like the bid ask spread or the expense ratio or whatever it is, there's like usually negative financial ramifications for mm-hmm. complexity. Right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But I think, you know, you need to figure out, I always like to say this, you need to figure out what you want to be and how you want to do it. And if the idea of reading a 10K and learning all you can about Apple bores you to tears, then don't buy Apple. I think, you know, being, you know, understanding who you are and where you want to go and what you want to do. If you don't want to spend a lot of free time on the necessary time and effort to be a stock picker, then don't do it. And it's just the, you know, just because Uncle Bob said that, you know, such and such company is going to be the next big thing. This is not always mean Uncle Bob's going to be right. So yeah, I think the yeah. idea of determining what's best for you is the best way to go. Yeah, those Thanksgiving dinner stock tips you hear, you know, don't always pan out the way that you know Uncle Bob thinks. My dad's name is Bob, and he's giving a lot of people oh. stock. My all my cousins. <laughs> If you're my cousin listening to this show, please beware. There's really no, there's also no teacher like experience. And so, you know, give yourself that permission to, yeah, go play with, you know, if you've been stock picking, yeah, go throw a thousand bucks in index fund, just leave it there for a year, see what happens. If you've only been doing index funds or you've only been doing real estate, like go buy an ETF. And, and I think that, you know, I did that when I was in my 20s. I had an e trade account and I was, you know, I still do that a little bit. I had some, some ideas, some hunches, some trading, whatever. And I think that's like informed, you know, my my very poor ability at picking great stocks has informed my index fund approach. I think it's a solid way for people to invest. And uh, what do you have any like tips or suggestions on how people can automate this as much as they can? Yeah, I mean, the, the nice thing about mutual funds and there are in index funds. The terminology is a little bit weird because ETFs confuse things, but index funds are basically a type of mutual fund that instead of buying shares like you do with a stock or ETFs, and even those are less clear now because you can buy partial shares, but in mutual funds are designed to just put money in and buy in dollars rather than buying in shares. And it also only trades once per day at the end of the day. And so I actually love the mutual fund version of index funds because it eliminates the whole need for trading and you know whether you're buying market or limit or whatever there's no stop losses there's no nothing there's just you put money in and then also every online brokerage has an automated investment feature for mutual funds whereas with stocks you can't really do that because you have to decide when during the open market you're buying and stuff but with mutual funds since they only trade at the end of the day and so if you have a Roth IRA for example that's a again a type of brokerage account that has no tax on any of the growth forever you can set up a $500 per month automated investment into a index fund and then just leave it for years. And, you know, one of my favorite stories is, you know, an example of an investor who started 40 years ago and spent, you know, 10 minutes setting up their account and putting in 500 bucks a month and then forgot about it. And then today they have about 3 million bucks. And very few, you know, active investors who are, you know, using the same amount of money over time are going to beat that, right? And just the simplicity is really dramatic and compelling. Yeah, that is. That is very dramatic and compelling. So if you could go back in time and tell yourself, what are some things that you've maybe learned since you kind of went through your transformation of being able to retire and now doing what you're doing? What are maybe two or three things that you 
wish you could tell yourself then that maybe you wish you had learned, I guess, earlier? I mean, if I could actually go back in time, I would say buy Bitcoin under a dollar <laughs> and sell it at $60,000. And, uh, you know, you will be the biggest Bitcoin billionaire on earth. Although I'm sure if I did that, that probably would change the space time. <laughs> yeah, you would screw us all. Right. And Dogecoin would be the, the, uh, the crypto that takes off. Well, it'd be the, it probably would be the currency of the world. <laughs> right, exactly. We'd be living in some dystopian future where I'm right. like, oh no, I really did it this time. I think the lessons are avoid debt. You know, I borrowed money for a car and I shouldn't have. I was in credit card debt, which, you know, partially necess- out of necessity when I started my company, but preferably no debt. And I think that a lot of people think that debt is like this uh, clever game they're playing if they can like beat the banks by borrowing more money. I'm like, no, just just don't. Just have your own money and, and spend it, you know, avoid debt, live below your means, and then keep your investments simple. And I think those things really free the mind to like, you know, be a less stressful life, more financially successful, and you can spend your time making more money. You know, I think a lot of people think that the more they spend time on investing, the better their investments will do, but often it's the opposite. And so you should really keep your investments simple and spend more time like doing work or side hustle or starting a business or whatever actually does have a a return on investment from the uh, effort you put in. Those are good ones. And I we've talked about this in the past before. Why do you think that the things that we're talking about today are not a bigger part of the public conscious consciousness? Why isn't this taught in school? Why do we leave arguably one of the most important things in, in life up to, you know, you graduate from high school, college, whatever, and you're thrown out into the wild and you have to figure out how to open a checking account, write a check, you know, well, balance a checkbook. That's going to say that's going to date myself there. But why do you think this is not discussed enough? I think like many big problems, there's a lot of moving pieces. I think in terms of the school part, I'm almost conspiracy theory level on this now where I just think politicians, in order to get elected, need money. They get money largely from corporations. Corporations, in order to make their next quarter's sales numbers, prefer spending, not frugality. And the combination of that just means there's no political will to teach good financial habits in school. I think that the, you know, American economy prefers 18 or 22 year olds coming out of high school and college, getting credit card and immediately spending beyond their means and then spending the rest of their life working to pay it back. Even though it's not good for the individual, I think corporations and politicians, as short-sighted as it may be, operate in a short-sighted way because politicians are trying to get elected every two to six years and corporations are trying to hit quarterly numbers. And so therefore there's just no, the powers that be aren't pushing for it to be in school. And then in terms of like adulthood, I just think there's a lot of stuff occupying our attention, right? Like there's social media and there's kids and there's work and there's, and this very unsexy uh, education of spending less and investing and learning how to do, you know, like there's a there's a reason like Mr. Beast. Do you guys know who Mr. Beast is? I know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's a reason why Mr. Beast is again like billions of views, and you know, you and I who are like dramatically trying to make people money in a much more tangible way rather than like randomly give someone ten thousand dollars a briefcase full of cash like help everyone. They don't flock to us just because it's not exciting. You know, it's a challenge for content creators like us who are trying to you know help people with money to. Do, to make it interesting enough to capture attention and still 
valuable enough to not just be part of the, you know, the noise and the, what's the word where people spend money? I said it earlier in this podcast, materialistic or yeah. materialistic society. Materialistic, yeah. 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 What we need is we need Taylor Swift to, you know, and during her concerts to start telling people they need to, you know, spend less than they, than oh they earn. Gosh. Taylor Swift licensed index fund, co-branded index fund. <laughs> like that is, oh my gosh, that's genius. I think if there's one idea that's going to come out of this podcast, it's we got to get in touch with Taylor Swift's people and get her, uh, get her <laughs> even make the, give her a couple points, make the expense ratio 0. 0.06 or something. She'll make another billion dollars and then, right. uh, and then everyone, everyone else will become rich. <laughs> Yeah, that's not the craziest idea in the world, actually. No, it's not. It's it actually pretty good. I know. I, I, I don't know why we haven't had like branded licensed index funds just to make it more fun. Mm-hmm. Teenage, yeah. teen, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle index fund, whatever it takes. <laughs> well, they did it with SPACs during the whole, you know, boom during COVID. Why can't they do it with ETFs, right? Yeah. Buy the, uh, the unknown shell of a index fund company or whatever those are. Well, Jeremy, this has been a lot of fun. And we have talked a lot about a lot of crazy stuff and a lot of very interesting things. Maybe can you direct people to where they could find more about you and what you got going on? Because I know you got a lot of things you're you brewing there. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to shout. I mean, the one thing that we haven't talked about yet is financial advisors, which is a question. It's a question that I've had the hardest time answering over the last four years of doing this, which is, how do I find a good financial advisor? And my answer has always been, and I think the answer still largely is, if you spend a few hours learning to invest, well, it's very hard to tell a good financial advisor apart from a bad financial advisor if you don't know how to invest. And once you do, you probably don't need one at all. But still, I think a lot of people want to talk to one just to put eyes in their portfolio, see if they're missing any opportunities, see if there's a tax situation or something like that. And so my big, I'm I, I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit my shtick on Instagram was that I retired at 36, but I think I'm slightly unretired now because we're we're building a company to basically solve the how do I find a financial advisor question. It's called Nectarine, and we're basically getting the best advisors in the industry on the platform, and we're doing advice only, which means they don't sell any products, they don't push any, they, they don't earn any commissions, they don't manage your money, they don't take you know. They don't take ownership of your assets. Simply book a meeting, share a screen. They can look at your Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab, E-Trade account, whatever it is. Then you pay just for the time. Right now, it's 150 bucks for an hour. No strings attached, no recurring fees, nothing else. And then you can see everything. And so Nectarine is where... It's at hellonectarine.com. And that's kind of where our, you know, where we're trying to help the, the world with fixing the world of financial advice, which we didn't really talk about, but the world of financial advice is kind of messed up with how financial advisors are paid. And so we're trying to fix that. How dare you charge by the hour instead of take a percent of assets? What's wrong with you? <laughs> I mean, the, the difference is like, if you use a few hours of financial advisor service over the years, you might pay a few hundred or a thousand bucks or something. If you pay them a percent or two, it might be quarter of a million, half yeah. a million, yeah. uh, the, the the number gets dramatic. And and that's why financial advisors love to just take your assets under management and then only want to be as helpful as they need to be to not have you leave. And it's kind of a pain to leave a financial advisor. And so we're trying to make a different business model. Hmm. Yeah. I completely agree with you on that. I think that's mm-hmm. super, super cool. So if somebody wants to take the first step into checking that out or checking out anything you do online, where, where should they go? Hello, nectarine.com is where you go if you want to, you know, check out the 
advisors, it's really easy. You just, you just choose your state, click search, and it shows you all the advisors right there. You can see the reviews and see, you know, their details, all that stuff. Book right through the right through the site. And then if you want to learn about Personal Finance Club, kind of my education brand, it's at personalfinanceclub.com or on Instagram at Personal Finance Club, where most of the uh the fun infographics and Halloween costumes, which you kind of tease at the beginning. So I feel like we at least need to like close that loop, which is, which is I every year I've been kind of ramping up weirder and weirder Halloween costumes, and maybe you've seen them go slightly viral. Um, but this one I was a, this year I was a uh, a house for sale, and I wore an entire children's playhouse with the Zillow listing for the house I was currently wearing, and the Zillow listing was like picking up like a uh, odometer in price as were the rates as were your monthly fees and it's a pretty it's the spookiest costume i could think of <laughs> i'm shaking in my boots right now yeah exactly i scared i scared a lot of people with that one <laughs> you i am not worthy i am not worthy i will not try to attempt to to compete on that level of Halloween costume ever. And, uh, I know. I do feel like every year the expectations get ramped up. So I do like make something <laughs> bigger and wilder. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're putting yourself in a hard position because if you do something like that, you got, you got big shoes to fill. That's right. Maybe next well, year you could do existential crisis. <laughs> I'm always listening for ideas because it's, it's hard to think of stuff that's like, especially novel <laughs> existential <laughs> crisis. I think that's, I think it's my costume the rest of the year. <laughs> Well, Jeremy, this was truly a pleasure. And I really enjoyed, we really enjoyed talking to you today. And this was a lot of fun. And you shared a lot of great wisdom and a lot of great advice. And we appreciate you doing that with our listeners. We also appreciate your time to come talk to our listeners. And I know that they will get a lot of great stuff out of this. So thank you very much for joining us. And with that, folks, we will go ahead and wrap it up. And we'll, you guys go out there and invest with the margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply